several years ago, my wife and I were returning from a trip, and uh, my wife was pulled aside uh, for a pat-down. And uh, while nothing serious happened, left her feeling that she had been touched and, and in a way that she did not want and somewhat violated. I was recently in Reagan International Airport, and the people in line with me, it wasn't crowded. We all just were pretty flabbergasted by the way we were all being treated, all of us. And the TSA agents were screaming at us. I don't know why. When I flew with my infant, because I was wearing my baby, they didn't put me through the scanner, but instead said they had to swipe my hands for explosives. For some reason, the swipe came back positive for explosives, and TSA didn't really know what to do with me. Uh, it was a false positive. I don't handle explosives. But I was made to stand there until some supervisor could come, and then I was put in a, in a private room. At this time, my baby was inconsolable. It was a very chaotic situation. It was just extremely stressful. If you're younger than 20, you've likely never been able to board a plane in the U.S. without a long stop at the security line. And you've never been to the gate to see off friends and family. Yes, today we're talking about everyone's favorite airport security line and the agency behind it, the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA. Last week, the Senate confirmed TSA Administrator David Pekoski for a second term, making him the longest-serving administrator to date. We know that we need to have continued experienced leadership, and Admiral Pekoski is well-qualified for this position. He will continue to make the transportation security and its modernization the nation's number one priority as it relates to the sector. It comes as the Transportation Security Administration marks its 21st year in existence. It was created by former President George W. Bush just two months after the 9-11 attacks to strengthen the nation's airport security procedures. For the first time, airport security will become a direct federal responsibility, overseen by a new Undersecretary of Transportation for Security. Additional funds will be provided for federal air marshals, and a new team of federal security managers, supervisors, law enforcement officers, and screeners will ensure all passengers and carry-on bags are inspected thoroughly and effectively. But today, the TSA has one of the highest turnover rates of any federal agency, with one in five new hires quitting in their first six months. And the public grievances are plentiful, with long lines and understaffed security, accusations of racial profiling, and inappropriate pat-downs. After the break, we take a closer look at the over two decades of the TSA and its role in our nation's aviation security. Is the TSA accomplishing what it was created to do? And of course, we also hear from you on your thoughts and experiences with the TSA. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to join us for future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Let's get into the conversation by welcoming our guests. Johnny Jones has been a transportation security officer since 2002. He's also the secretary treasurer for the American Federation of Government Employees Council 100. It represents 44,000 TSA officers. He joins us from Texas. Johnny, welcome. Hey, thank you for having uh, thank you for having me on the program. Also with us is Daryl Campbell. He's a writer for The Verge who focuses on tech and recently wrote about the history of the TSA. Daryl, welcome to 1A. 
Howdy, Jen. And John Pistol. He's the former deputy director of the FBI from 2004 to 2010 and the former TSA administrator from 2010 to 2014. Currently, he's the president of Anderson University in Indiana. John, thanks for joining us. Good to be here with you. We did reach out to the TSA, but they did not make someone available for the conversation. John, what was the vision for the TSA when it was first created over 20 years ago? Well, first and foremost, it was, of course, to prevent another 9-11. For those who remember that time and and the sense was that the attacks on 9-11 may have been the first wave of attacks involving transportation, but perhaps other uh, radiological, nuclear, biological, you know, the NBC type of attacks. And so that was the genesis of the creation and has remained its constant theme of making sure that terrorists, wannabe terrorists, putative terrorists, are not able to replicate either the events of 9-11 or in or to defeat the attempted plots that we've seen, uh, think of four plots since 9-11 uh, that have been directed at the U.S. involving aviation, um, primarily originating overseas. And then, of course, a number of attacks overseas where they don't have TSA type of safety security and the whole idea of of risk-based security, what does that mean to facilitate the free movement of people and goods with the best security? Johnny, you became a TSA officer in 2002, soon after its creation. What made you want to apply? Um, It was a calling. It was a sense of duty. Um, A lot of my friends um, went off into the Marines and the Air Force uh, after 9-11, um, I was younger, I had a couple of kids, and it was, un- it was unrealistic for me to, to do such such thing. And uh, when I heard about the creation of TSA, I felt like it was an opportunity for me to give back to the country. Hmm. Daryl, through your reporting, what have you learned about the TSA in its early days? Well, you know, we know, as Administrator Pistol said, that after 20 years, the TSA is still pretty much organized to stop a threat like 9-11. But we know that terrorist strategies have changed, that other ways of protecting ourselves are more effective and more efficient than increasing the level of airport security. And as he mentioned, you know, a lot of the threats are coming from overseas where the TSA doesn't operate. It really hasn't had much of a role in some of the biggest counterterrorism stories of the last 20 years. So, um, you know, I was talking, I spent the last six months speaking with travelers, frontline TSA workers, and researchers and experts on uh, airport security. And a lot of them are just questioning whether the TSA really does what it's kind of sold to the American public is doing. John, you talked about threats from overseas, but what about domestic threats in your time at the TSA? Was there much focus on threats coming from within the country itself? In terms of actual attempts to either blow up a plane, no, those have been foreign origination. And whether it's the Richard Reed, the shoe bomber in December of 01, or Abdul Muttalib, the the underwear bomber and Christmas Day 2009, or the liquids plot from the UK, a number of different airlines, and I think that was July of 06, or the, the cargo plot, uh, October of 2010, all inbound flights to the US, even though they originated overseas. So it's not much comfort to a passenger or crew or loved ones of anybody on one of those flights if they had uh, blown up the fact that they started overseas versus the U.S. And just to clarify a little bit, 
even though TSA is not uh, operationally screening people overseas, TSA has a broad international presence with the nearly 275 what's called last points of departure for flights that come to the U.S. Um, seasonally and then a few dozen less than that year-round where the, anybody coming to the U.S. has to follow TSA protocols even though it's being handled by a foreign government or, or company. So that's so it is all interrelated, and as we said, you know, the and continues on, the threats are real and the stakes are high. So let's make sure that the women and men of TSA are receiving the resources they need and the ability to do their jobs to prevent another type of attack, whether it's 9-11 or something else similar. Now you became the administrator of the TSA in 2010. What kind of changes did you make while you were there? Well, one of the keys that I've realized coming from nearly 27 years at the FBI is that that we, TSA, did not treat everybody the same based on whether they were known and trusted traveler. And the reason, the, the question that I asked shortly after getting TSA and meeting with all the leadership was, why is it that um, I've been able to get on a plane for, you know, all these years with a deadly weapon um, and yet others you know, are, are not, obviously. Well, that's because you, you're an FBI agent. And I said, well, that's my point. If we can identify through the voluntary sharing of information by passengers who want a more streamlined physical screening process, then why don't we treat them as known and trusted travelers, similar to what Customs Border Protection was doing with global entry. So we created um, what we call a risk-based security model and implemented 20, almost 25 changes. The, the best known one, of course, is TSA PreCheck, which both my successor, uh, Administrator Peter Neffringer, and our current administrator, and congratulations to, to David Pekoski for being reconfirmed for a second five years. Um, what they are doing in terms of innovation with the workforce, uh, with the technology, with the policies and practices and modernization and expanding the known and trusted traveler population. So all those things factor into whether TSA is, uh, quote, successful in terms of detecting, deterring uh, terrorists who want to cause us harm. Well, we asked the TSA to provide someone for this conversation. They didn't, but the agency's press secretary, Carter Langston, did email responses to some of our questions. We'll share some of them. On the issue of effectiveness, TSA Press Secretary Carter Langston wrote, quote, on the issue of effectiveness, TSA Press Secretary Carter Langston wrote, quote, over the course of TSA's 20 years, the agency has managed a significant leap from high-touch, low-tech airport security screening operations to an operation now that is high-tech and low-touch. TSA officers continue to stop a record number of firearms, the majority of which are loaded, from entering the secure area of airports and passenger cabins of commercial aircraft. So far this year, TSA officers have intercepted over 4,500 firearms at TSA checkpoints, end quote. Johnny, what are your thoughts on the security protocols? Do you do you think they're working from someone who's on the ground? Oh, yes. Um, the, there's all kinds of challenges that we face as TSA officers. Um, of course, <clears throat> one of those challenges has came during the pandemic. Um, we had to change our, almost our entire screening protocols during the pandemic uh, as it started because, you know, you can't really get that close. We had to take additional safety protocols. They are working. Uh, we are doing our jobs effectively. 
the agency provide, has provided the tools necessary to do our jobs. Um, one of the biggest issues that TSOs face is not actually at the work site, but it's the equal pay that we would receive from our other agency counterparts. Um, and so I think it's more of an external issue as opposed to an internal issue um, for the TSA workforce. Aldero, in 2015, an internal investigation by the Department of Homeland Security found security failures at the nation's busiest airports, and this led to the reassignment of the acting head of the TSA. In 2017, sources said that undercover tests found that screeners failed to detect weapons at a high rate. What do we know about the reasons behind these failures? Well, we don't know specifically because um, the reports are heavily redacted, but we know that the TSA often challenges uh they send what they call red teams in to essentially smuggle in uh, weapons to see how uh, strictly enforced some of these screening policies are done. And the ratios were really high. There's something like above 90% of the time that these red teams were able to get um, their weapons past security without being detected, which is pretty alarming. You know, I live in Texas. Uh, we love our guns down here. And you can imagine what would happen if someone took a loaded weapon onto an airplane, it went off and potentially punctured the skin of the fuselage. I mean, that uh, could be a pretty catastrophic failure. John, these tests were performed after you served, but do you have any insight into those failures? Well, it's some, and they did that um, covert testing while I was administrator. And uh, in some ways, uh, we and TSA looked at uh, the red team testing as, as super terrorist and, and from the standpoint of them knowing the protocols, uh, the policy, the training for the TSOs, but also they knew things that no terrorists should know, and that's the detection capabilities and specifications for the individual types of equi- equipment being used at the various airports. And so not only did they know what should be done in terms of a TSO's responsibility, if there's an alarm, for example, but they knew what was capable, the machines were capable of doing. And so oftentimes they would push the envelope as they should, but to do things, for example, to put something in a belly band, you know, an inert explosive in a belly band. Um, and so when that showed up or alarmed and the TSO went to do a pat down, the the undercover um, officer would say, oh, I, I've recently had back surgery. And so just, you know, obviously you need to do your job, but if you can just be really careful uh, because it's really sore. Just so the, the social engineering, if you will. So they had insights that no terror should have. Uh, and it's, it's a good process for helping TSA improve because that's incorporated then into future learning. So those are all, that's some of the context. You know, in universities, we talk about text without context is pretext. So just that idea, what's the context for this covert testing and what are the actual results in the real world where there have been no successful, I'd say no no attempts in, in the U.S., even though there have been overseas, because the bad guys understand not only the physical aspects of the screening process, but the intelligence-backed screening because TSA gets daily intelligence reports from the U.S. intelligence community about what terrorists might be thinking in terms of new types of explosives, uh, detonation opportunities, um, insider threats, all those things that TSA deals with every day, day in, day out. Well, John, just help us better understand the TSA's role within this this broader um, environment of preventing terror, terrorist attacks. Because it, mm-hmm. as I'm hearing you describe this, it sounds like the TSA is just 
a point um, in this larger process of, of preventing attacks. And actually, they come pretty late in that process. Right. Yes, I, and some people refer to TSA and the flight crew, of course, as the last lines of defense, because if there is a uh, referred to as a clean skin, uh, somebody with not in CIA, NSA's, anybody's databases as being a possible terrorist. And that's what happened with Abdul uh, Matalab on Christmas Day 2009, 24-year-old Nigerian son of a, a significant banker there. And he had raised some limited concerns, but he was able to go through at least two airport walk-through to metal detectors overseas before he got on the Northwest Flight 253 from Skipway Airport to Detroit. And he tried to, to blow up the plane coming in on approach to Detroit. Of course, the, uh, the device did not go up. It burned, but did not, did not explode. So that's all these things. Yeah, TSA is a last line of defense along with the flight crew. John, I have to say we received a lot of voicemails expressing negative feelings or experiences with the TSA. How important do you think public outreach or public education is for the agency? Well, it's a good point, Jim, because the better informed the traveling public is, the better prepared they can be to go through something that might be something they do infrequently at best. And so if they know that here are the limitations that you can't take a bottle of water on, you can't take this or that, and here's what you can do, that just helps streamline the process for everybody. And that's why uh, Administrator Pekoski is is working mightily, I think, to, to try to expand the known and trusted traveler population because the more people you have signed up for TSA PreCheck, the, the more knowledgeable they are because they fly frequently uh, and at $85 for five years and $70 on a renewal is one of the last bargains U.S. government is offering. You get through more quickly with less hassle. So if more and more people can be part of that known trusted uh, population because they volunteered a little bit of information about themselves and record checks can be done, then I think that would uh, significantly decrease the number of complaints, which I would surmise and, and probably shouldn't, but that mainly come from infrequent travelers who don't know what the expectations are for going through safely and securely. We're discussing the effectiveness of the Transportation Security Administration. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Remember, the fastest way to connect with us is through our text club. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Let's get back to our conversation with this voicemail from Maddie in Washington. One major problem with the TSA is their use of the automatic body scanners, which target and flag non-binary and transgender individuals. Because our bodies don't look like a typical cisgender male or female, we often get flagged for additional screening and pat-downs by the TSA agents, which leads to additional harassment and, at the very least, humiliation. Daryl, this was an issue you covered in your recent piece about the TSA. Talk us through the screening process and why it's gendered. Yeah, so this is something that I spoke with one of the world's foremost researchers on this topic. Uh, their name is Os Keys, and they're a computer science researcher at the University of Washington. But what I didn't realize was that when you go through the body scanner, even before you step in, a TSO has to select a button to choose whether you're going to be scanned as a male or you're going to be scanned as a female. And the reason for that is that, frankly, the scanners just aren't really that good. I mean, if, if you didn't have that gender input then everybody would get flagged and everybody would have to go through a pat-down. So what that gender selection does is say, okay, well, uh, 
if you are selected as a woman, then we're going to ignore long hair. We're going to ignore if you have extra flesh around your chest, maybe an underwire around your bra. Uh, whereas if you're a male, we're just going to ignore any kind of uh, anything extra in the groin. That means that if you are, for example, as the, the voicemail caller said, trans, or if you happen to get uh, the wrong gender selected, or if you don't dress in a way that, you know, sort of fits um, mainstream norms, you're going to get flagged for a pat-down almost every single time. Uh, I talked with someone named Victoria Scott, uh, who's a trans woman, uh, dresses, she says, very femme. Um, but, I mean, she has to travel all the time for work, and that means she has to build in at least a half an hour of additional time just to get through the screening process. In addition to that, I mean, she said she had a recent experience where the TSO said, well, if you don't like this, why don't you just dress as a male? And she said, well, that's not going to work either, because even if I do that, then my chest is going to set off um, the alarm and I'm going to get selected for a pat down. And, you know, these pat downs, uh, as the previous voicemail caller said, it's not a, a light frisking. I mean, it's an 18 step process. Uh, the TSO has to put their hand inside the waistband of your pants, has to press on your chest, on your groin, on your thighs, on your buttocks. It's you know, everything we learned in grade school is a bad touch, but as a matter of security. So, um, you know, this is an example of, in an ideal world, of course, we'd all be security maximalists, but every new policy decision, every new technology comes with a cost of people's time, of people's civil liberties, even in some cases in their trust in government. And I think this is a perfect example of that happening. Johnny, how have you seen this gendered screening process affect passengers? Um, we are trained to uh to the to the maximum about the, the the screening process it's very difficult sometimes in a in a busy environment um as you're running if you're running to AIT as a as a TSO officer you're looking and you you are going to screen that individual as they appear and you um, said AIT what does that mean it's the advanced uh, imaging technologies that it's the uh, the body scanner more or less mm-hmm. <clears throat> this for the uh for the listening public so they understand the so when you're walking in, the TSO is working. And he looks and or she looks and says, "Okay, um, you have to make an assessment based on what the the individual looks like." Um, it's not something where the passenger can select. It's it's something that the officers are doing, making their best judgment. Um, and of course, some sometimes they make a mistake. It's obviously not intentional. The job is very difficult. It's uh, one of the most stressful jobs you're going to have um, in the federal government because you are facing the public. Uh, you are in face-to-face contact. You're not sitting behind a desk. You're not sitting on the telephone. You are talking to somebody face-to-face. Uh, you have to pat down the individuals. Um, like you're saying, it's, it's a long process. But we have to do it as professionally as we can. And that's the that's what we do, and that's what we're going to continue to do. Um, unfortunately, um, it's we have to do it, but we may have to make some improvements on some of the transgender screening procedures, but you know it's something that we're working on. Daryl, in March of this year, the Department of Homeland Security announced changes to address these concerns, including replacing the current gender-based system. Briefly, what more do we know about the changes they're making? Uh, well, all we have is a press release, so we don't really know anything. Um, hopefully, it means that it will be a little bit more inclusive, but. Even if that's true, that doesn't change the fact that, for example, um, you know, one thing I didn't get a chance to cover in my article was that there's about 26 million Americans who the Department of Transportation says have a travel-limiting li- disability. And that means that you know, they probably can't stand up in the scanner, um, you know, hold that pose for 10 seconds, which means they're probably going to get pat-downs too. So even if we solve for the weird gender input, uh, I think there's still a lot uh, of ways that 
people get kind of shunted over into this pad down process, not because they're terrorists, not because they've had any kind of threatening behavior, but just because, you know, that's how it's built. Now, in response to a 2019 Government Accountability Office report on improving TSA's oversight on profiling, TSA Press Secretary Carter Langston wrote, quote, TSA agreed with the recommendation, and in October 2019, the agency implemented oversight mechanisms to ensure compliance. TSA prohibits racial profiling. The agency is also aggressively working with technology vendors to ensure algorithmic and systematic bias is eliminated from the one-person screening technologies, or rather the on-person screening technologies that are deployed at TSA checkpoints, end quote. We're hearing from a number of people about racial profiling. Uh, we, Mike tweets, are there any U.S. laws against profiling? Many countries use profiles as an efficient method to increase security. Daryl, explain a bit more about what has happened with the TSA and racial profiling. According to documents received by the ACLU, through a FOIA request in 2017, there was a focus or bias against Arabs, Muslims, and people of Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. What did you find in your reporting? Yeah, I mean, there's no law as far as we know. Um, Obviously, the TSA says that they are you know, fairly standardized, but we've got so many incidents. You mentioned the GAO example where they found about a thousand incidents of uh, what they called potential discrimination and unprofessional conduct that involved race over a two-year period. Uh, We know from the TSA's own internal statistics that uh, hundreds of times a year people call in and complain that they've been racially profiled, um, they've had civil rights uh, violations with respect to their race, and that's just people who actually call in. I mean, a lot of the folks that I talked to said that they either can't find how to call and complain to the TSA or they just don't trust in the system. But I mean, let me give you just kind of an example. So in 2017 uh, in Detroit, uh, two TSOs stopped a man who was um, a Sikh. So he's, you know, dark skinned, facial hair, wearing a turban. After he'd already gone through security, uh, said, you're not going to get on this plane until we submit you to extra security screening process. And by the way, you have to take off your turban, which actually was a violation of TSO policy because that would violate uh, this person's religious freedom. And they insisted and insisted. And it wasn't until he produced a diplomatic passport that said that he wasn't uh, some random person, not a threat, but he was actually a Canadian government minister, uh, the Canadian minister for, I think, innovation, science and technology, and that he was officially recognized by the government as not a threat, that they backed off. Now, you can imagine if you don't have the support of one of our closest allies, you're just a regular person trying to get through the airport, how would you fight back against that? And the answer usually is you don't. You just submit to whatever additional screening um, that happens. So it, it is a process that there's, there's a real disconnect between what they say is going on and the reality on the ground. John, was this something you attempted to address during your time at the TSA? It, it was, and it is, continues to be an issue, um, as you just mentioned, Because with over 2 million people a day traveling and with a a number of different appearances and presentations, how people come in, um, there are a number of challenges that the TSOs and the supervisors and managers, the leads, all those folks face on a daily basis. And it's obviously not a perfect system. What TSA strives to do every day, when when I was administrator and again when Pete Neffinger and now uh, Administrator Pekoski, is to make sure that uh, as close to 100% as a traveling public can be treated with respect and dignity while ensuring that they don't pose a security threat or risk 
to that particular flight or to an ongoing flight that they might be connecting on and they wouldn't have to go through security again. So that is the goal and the, and the challenge. Uh, but it is, uh, TSA, like every organization of over 60,000 people uh, comprised of humans um, and, and less than perfect technology. And so they strive to do the best every day. And for the vast, vast majority of the hundreds of millions of people, nearly three quarters of a billion uh, people traveling through TSA checkpoints uh, this year, uh, I believe will be on track, then the very high percentage are, are treated as they expect. And then the others, uh, it's, they worked with to try to address their concerns. Johnny, as a TSO, this isn't new to you, I'm sure, hearing about racial profiling. Do you think this is something that requires additional training for TSA officers? Yes, um, we are trained annually. Um, we take uh, it's online trainings uh, that we do uh, in regards to racial profiling. But just from the from the workport workforce perspective, I've personally I've never seen that kind of behavior um, in the workforce. You know, it, and there's all kinds of racial profiling. It's not just you know you could say like we're in Texas. Um, you may say this guy's a cowboy. He's definitely got a gun or something. Um, it's not it's not like that. Um, we work on the floor. We're very dedicated. We're, we're extreme professionals. Um, we work very diligently not to violate anybody's rights. Um, of course, if they have a complaint, they'll file the complaint. We get plenty of complaints. We also get a lot of compliments about the way that we behave and act and do our job uh, proficiently. Um, of course, additional training is always helpful. In addition to that, probably a more in-person approach. Um, you may have a subtle comment that may appear to be racially motivated or 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 something of that nature. So maybe some additional training in that way would assist. Rather but than rather the, than the virtual training? Yeah, like, mm-hmm. yeah, rather than virtual, more in-person, kind of a, a few key words could change a, a whole scenario. We also heard from uh, a TSA screener in the beginning from 2002 to 2005, and they say, there is a real threat. I learned how easy it really is for threats to be placed in all kinds of places on and off the plane. Compassion, professionalism, and patience must go both ways. And then we got this question, would a charter flight be subject to TSA scrutiny? Uh, Daryl, if you're flying privately, do you have to go through the same process? Uh, so it depends. Uh, it, it depends on the size of your flight, uh, your destination, and a couple other factors. Um, but generally speaking, uh, if you're a charter flight, it's actually up to the charter carrier to screen you in line with TSA um, uh, TSA protocols. Um, but they won't actually have TSA officers doing the screening. Uh, I think the exception is something like uh, flights above 51 people. We also got this question from Kurt, and I'll admit it's a question I have as well. What's up with the inconsistent screening practices from airport to airport at any given time? And John, I have to say, I have to travel quite a bit for work. And there are times when I'm told, take your shoes off, take your laptop out of your bag. When I'm in one airport and then in another airport, just leave everything in your bag, leave your shoes on, come through. What accounts for that difference? Yeah, so the old adage uh, at, at TSA, I assume it's the same, uh, is if you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport. So even though we like consistency, both in the, the policies, the protocols, and the implementation of those with the same equipment, um, 
that doesn't always happen. And so there may be some reasons that are uh, airport specific for a particular time. For example, there's a huge surge coming in that was anticipated, but not to the degree because of complications, because of delayed flights or canceled flights, you know, any number of things or, or a, an AIT, the advanced imaging technology machine goes down. And so that causes a different approach than what had been done. And so, yeah, if you've seen one airport, you've seen one airport, my encouragement to, to the workforce when I was there, and I, I know, again, Administrator Pekoski and, and Neffinger did the same, is to try to ensure that the workforce is as professional and flexible and effective and efficient, all those things at once, in, in particularly in challenging situations that cause that extra stress on the travelers who are just feeling, oh, I'm going to miss my flight. Yeah, I can't do this. And, and yet that's what terrorists try to do to exploit vulnerabilities to say, yes, let's cause some type of havoc so we can uh, do what we want to do. Johnny, when analyzing how the TSA working one is working, one measure you can use is worker satisfaction. And as we've said, the organization has a high turnover rate. One in five TSA officers leaves within their first six months on the job, and employees receive some of the lowest pay of any federal agencies. Uh, salaries start as low as $29,000 annually. I- explain more about the pay issue and the effect it has on employee satisfaction and retention. Yeah, I can definitely do that. Um, when we, <clears throat> just to give you an idea, so like I started in 2002, um, like my salary is now in the mid 50s. Um, over a period of, or actually low 50, sorry, um, over a period of time, you get hired in. The agency has been trying to fix the pay for the employees when they're coming in the door. But once you get to that three year window, after you start with the agency, your pay becomes a little less clear. Um, so when you're an employee and you're coming in, you're like, well, the first couple of years are great. I'm getting these nice big pay increases, but unfortunately the longevity side or the people that you want to stay for more than five years, that initiative for them to want to stay changes. So the administrator, administrator Prokoski, we want to applaud him for working very hard, uh, with the union, uh, to, um, fix the pay system. We're working on what they call pay equity. Uh, it's a program of which we're going to get paid to, with our counterparts in the Department of Homeland Security. As you're well aware, TSA was put together in um, pretty short order, so there was no things, there was no collective bargaining rights. And to the thanks to Administrator Pistol, uh, we, we received partial collective bargaining rights, um, but we still do not have full collective bargaining rights, the same as other agencies. So it's a, com- it's a, it's a whole bunch of things. The pay is one thing, your workplace and work-life conditions are another thing. So when we get this all merged in where we have full collective bargaining right, the Biden administration is fully uh, committed to giving us administrative Title V rights um, or full collective bargaining rights, Merit System Protection Board, FLRA rights. Um, So that will change the working conditions for the TSO and it will have paid clarity. So when you get hired into the agency, instead of saying, hey, um, if I'm here for 10 years, this is where I'll be making or pretty close to it. Whereas right now, when you get hired, there is no clarity. John, in just a sentence or two, what challenges lie ahead for the agency? Policies, personnel, pay. 
Well, that was as succinct as it gets. That's John Pistol. He's a former TSA administer, administrator. Also with us today, Johnny Jones, a current transportation security officer, and Daryl Campbell, a writer for The Verge. Thanks to you all for your time. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.